Hi, and welcome to episode number 114 of the weekly Google Cloud Platform podcast. I'm Mark Mandel, and I'm here with my colleague, Melanie Warwick. How are we doing this fine morning, Melanie? Great, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Glad to be back in the recording studio with you today. Yes, it is good to be back here as well. Yes, talking is hard. today, we are going to be on this very special day. We are going to be actually talking with Timnit and Margaret, who are coming from Microsoft and Google, respectively, working in machine learning and AI research. And they're also specifically here to talk to us about machine learning bias and fairness. And they do a lot of research around that, which we had a great time talking to them about. So I'm looking forward to that yeah, interview. Amazing. And unfortunately, we didn't have enough time for it. But before we get to that, we always do the cool things of the week. And we also have our question at the end of the podcast, which is basically a chat between Mark and a mutual friend of ours, <laughs> KF. And the question is pretty much that, is there a GCP service that's basically cloud identity aware proxy, except for a static site that you host via cloud storage? So we'll get into that at the end of the podcast. All right, Mark, what's a cool thing of the week that's on your mind? Cool things of the week. So I'm going to go to the community first rather than one of our blog posts. There is a really cool Medium blog post talking about GPS cellular asset tracking using Google Cloud IoT Core, Firestore, and Mongoose OS. It is written by someone whose name is, I'm unfortunately going to completely and utter butcher. I'm going to go with Alvaro Villabrantz. It seems Sounds close enough. Uh, it's a really great article that goes into great technical depth about how they put all the pieces together, shows off a lot of code on how basically they get uh, information from the assets themselves, so the mobile devices, into IoT Core, which then takes things into PubSub, which then puts things in Cloud Functions, which then goes into Cloud Firestore, which then goes into a web app based on Firebase hosting. It's a really great read. Uh, you should probably check that out if any of that sounds particularly interesting to you. Yes, and they provide a tutorial on how to do this as well, which is really awesome. So definitely check that out. What do you got? All right. I have that there are GPUs now involved with Kubernetes Engine. So basically, GPUs in Kubernetes Engine is now available in beta. And when you are spinning up anything with Kubernetes Engine, you can just set up what kind of GPUs you need, type, number, and you're good to go. Sweet. Finally, I know there are a lot of Java programmers out there, and Spring is a very popular framework. So we are actually announcing Spring Cloud GCP, uh, integrating your favorite Java framework with Google Cloud. So if you're using uh, Spring and you want to use a product like, say, Cloud SQL or Cloud PubSub or Cloud Storage or Stackdriver Trace or the Runtime Configuration API, there's direct integrations with Spring frameworks such as their JDPC framework, Spring Resources, Cloud Sleuth, those sort of things that are available. If you want to get started, there's links to code samples, reference documentations, the GCP project page, as well as having Spring Cloud Code Labs. Wow, that's hard to say. That you can also go to and have a play with. So if Spring is your thing, oh, that was fun. Go check that out. It's coming up. All right. Well, I think it's time to go talk with Timnit and Margaret. So let's do that. This week's podcast, we are excited to have Timnit Gabru and Margaret Mitchell join us to talk about machine learning fairness. They both have experience in research backgrounds, especially around machine learning, cognitive sciences, computer vision, language processing. I'm definitely excited to have them here because they've been doing some work around bias and fairness in the machine learning and AI space that I think would be very interesting to hear about. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So Timmy, can you give us a little more information about your background? Sure. I uh, have a very roundabout way of arriving at where I am right now. I studied um, electrical engineering at Stanford. And um, well, I'm from, originally from Ethiopia. I was a refugee here. I came um, to the States when I was 16. 
And so then I, I went to Stanford to study electrical engineering and I did analog circuit design like hardware. And I did that for my mess. Um, and then I worked at Apple doing that, designing circuits and things like this. And then I got a master's and then somehow I was working in device, something called device physics, which is then even more of um, analog circuit design. And somehow I started getting interested in image processing and then that became computer vision. And then I just kind of switched my entire direction to do computer vision in my PhD. And then towards the end of when I was working on computer vision, I was very, very worried about the lack of diversity in that entire field and just in AI in general. Like every time I went to a conference, I would not see women, but also like I would see very, very few black people. And then towards the end of my PhD, I also read this ProPublica article about software that's predicting crime recidivism rates. So that started to worry me. And then I decided like I wanted to um, spend a little bit of time trying to understand the societal impact of AI and some work of people who are working on fairness and things like this, like Meg has worked on it way longer than me. So then I joined Microsoft Research um, in New York in the FATE group. So FATE stands for Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Ethics. So right now I'm doing a postdoc there. Thanks. That's great. And Margaret, your background, I know you're at Google, but you've also had a background with Microsoft. Yeah, so I um, I did my PhD in, in computer science, uh, focusing on natural language processing. And then I eventually joined MSR as a researcher there in the natural language processing group under Bill Dolan, and worked a lot on language generation, which is producing sort of linguistic descriptions about the real world. My work was generally grounded in images. So I worked on that while at Microsoft Research. And I was really noticing and focusing on some of the things that my systems were starting to generate. Kind of as we moved into deep learning, the language that was being generated seemed more and more human-like. And within that human likeness, there were more and more things that were alarming me. And so I started focusing more and more directly on a couple things. One is how can we like take the technology we're working on and put it forward for positive ethical use cases long term. And that was really focusing on things like accessibility, as well as how can we do things like mitigate bias or address problematic human biases and stereotypes in the data we're training on so that eventually we don't propagate or amplify the biases. There was an opportunity for me to really focus on the ethics part of this at Google. Um, and so after three years, I left Microsoft uh, Research and then joined Google to work directly on fairness and ethics in machine learning. Nice. I know when I met both of you, you were co-hosting or co-running an AI ethics group that was made up of people from all different groups, all different companies education backgrounds. And it was a great session in terms of just talking about some of the issues, the, the broader issues. I think the main question I, I want to ask is, you know, to just help our listeners starting out, you've touched on it, but can you give us like how to think about what is ML fairness? That's a really big question. So hmm. when we talk about ML fairness, we're often talking about something like prejudice or stereotypes that are propagated by algorithmic systems and specifically machine learning systems. There's a lot of sort of ways to talk about what fairness is and bias comes in and then bias can mean a few different things, some of it mathematical, some of it social. Basically, the, the fairness world kind of encompasses a lot of the things that have to do with the diversity and inclusion in the outputs of our systems and looking at whether or not there's disproportional sort of negative uh, effects or disproportional inaccuracies on some subgroups um, corresponding to different kinds of social groups like race, gender, age. 
Thanks. And in terms of the work that you've both done, I know you're, you're talked about the groups that you've been involved in. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what Google's doing, what Microsoft is doing in these spaces with ML Fairness? Um, I can talk about what Microsoft is doing specifically, especially my group. So one of the reasons I joined FATE, it's a newly created group, is because it's an interdisciplinary group. So I really believe that you can't address this problem by just talking to other machine learning people or by just talking to other lawyers. um, Because, for example, there are some laws, equal employment opportunity laws, for example, that I don't think are being applied to algorithms like hiring algorithms that could could, you know, have biased outputs or things like this. So um, at FATE, there are people like Kate Crawford, Hannah Wallach does um, machine learning, but also computational social science, Jim Wartman Vaughn. And there's also other people like perf- who work with us peripherally, like Glenn, who is a very well-known economist. And so what we do is we not only try to understand the societal impacts, but uh, also then work on some technical machine learning solutions. So Personally, like what I've been very focused on, even though what I like to do most is technical work, you know, um, computer vision or purely machine learning. This year, I've been more focused on trying to uncover some biases that exist in commercial APIs, for example, uh, that are being um, sold to people, and then trying to figure out how to have a standardized way of providing some sort of information. For people. So for example, like from my hardware background, I know that any little component that you use, like from the cheapest resistor to like something as complicated as a CPU or something like this, always comes with something called a data sheet, right? And so for me, I'm trying to uh, like evangelize this idea of a data sheet or pre-trained models, APIs and data sets and trying to understand what that would look like, what the pitfalls are, or, you know, if we had a data sheet for this kind of um, process, what it would look like and trying to talk to other product groups as well, trying to work with them to see what it would look like for them if it's it's useful for them to have this idea, et cetera, et cetera. So in addition to, I guess, the technical work, I'm, I'm personally more focused on trying to understand policy and what kinds of standardizations we could have and things like this. Nice. So at Google, um, one of the things that really, really appealed to me was the ability to work across the organization. And so part of my job now involves talking to people on who's working on mobile devices, assistant, cloud, all these different kinds of products and services that Google is offering, and talking to them at the level of code, at the level of data, like what's going on that might be amplifying different kinds of biases. And so we're starting to put out some stuff publicly, I'm specifically focused on machine learning code that can help mitigate different kinds of biases. We're working incredibly hard internally across a variety of different dimensions from what the UX experience should be like when you have some sort of bias issue to what kind of input we want from different kinds of sources, like Tim Neat says, like including people from policy, including people who have focus on ethics philosophically really trying to dig into this cross-disciplinary effort across Google as, as a whole. So it's been a really nice chance for me to try and make change from within, you know, um, working directly with products that I know are touching millions or billions of people and, and really walking through like, how can we make this really work for everyone? Nice. It's nice that there's both the internal, but also like to meet, you're saying, you know, working this cross-disciplinary way of looking at, you know, how to think about this on a broader scale too. Yeah. <laughs> you, you touched on this briefly. I'm happy to let you all talk. You know way more about this than, than I do. 
But uh, Tim, you, you touched on this briefly about you're talking about sort of um, biases and hiring practices. I wonder if you could kind of expand on sort of maybe some common or possibly some not well known biases that ML can kind of introduce, or, or what basically some examples, especially for those people who aren't necessarily as familiar with this space. And I know you've got a research paper that was out around you know demographics, especially looking at cars. So I know that's one that might probably be on mind. So let me let me answer your question in a, in a particular way to bring in something I always want to talk about, which is diversity. So this is why I think diversity is important. Uh, it, it, it's basically almost like having domain knowledge. So, for example, when, you know, I, I, I guess this is a well-known uh, example, which is the crime recidivism uh, rates that I was talking about. So there was this ProPublica article that talked about how this um, company was using machine learning to predict uh, someone's likelihood of committing a crime again, right? So when I read this article, I was immediately absolutely horrified because I, I just knew that there was absolutely no way that this software would not be biased. The reason is that I've been, you know, I, I've been a black woman all my life and I live in the U.S. and I, you know, know all sorts of things that happen to my friends. I know all sorts of statistics for the likelihood of, you know, being caught by police if you commit a crime as a black person versus not um, in certain neighborhoods, etc. So all of these things just came to my brain when I was reading about um, this article. And I immediately, even though I had never worked in fairness before, and I didn't even think before that about this concept of algorithmic fairness, that article for me was very scary because I had this domain knowledge that this bias exists because of my background and because of the types of things I've been reading about, right? So so I guess my, my point is that there are many such things where, so one, one thing I, I, I learned, for example, is that speech recognition does not work well for um, younger people, but also people who have hearing impairments or, or things like this. And I'm not, you know, in that community. So it's more difficult for me to know about these biases, but someone who has that type of domain knowledge, it's, it's important important for me to interface with someone that has that type of domain knowledge in, or, in order to know about these biases. So for me, this issue of bias and diversity go hand in hand. And sometimes I uh, get kind of frustrated when we, um, if we only talk about the technical aspects, because I, I just feel like they, they go hand in hand. Timnit, I really hear you on that. And one thing that I think has really struck me as I've worked on fairness and I've worked with others on it is that it's actually really difficult to work on machine learning models where you're where you're recognizing, for example, that this only works for pale males or this only works for men and not women and not see the same kind of patterns in your everyday work life. Um, I mean, ideally, these are maybe two separate worlds, but I think for actually the engineers and researchers, we're good at seeing these kinds of patterns. We're working on these kinds of patterns and not seeing them in the world is no longer an option. It's it's kind of like once your eyes are open to it, then you see it. Although they are sort of separate, I think the people who get the most inspired by it, some of the people who are the most driven are the people who are seeing the patterns on both sides of the coin, both in the machine learning, you know, machine learn models world, as well as their everyday work life. 
I, I was also going to say, like, um, one of the things I was thinking about is uh, many of the papers uh, or the works when we were talking about machine learning and fairness, we don't look at the data generation process, right? I, I guess there's this Moritz's paper on causality that tries to, to look at, okay, how could this data have been generated? But most of the time, we just kind of take the data and we say, okay, given this data, what are the biases that exist or, right. you know, what notions of fairness can we use and stuff? And one direction, I, I you know, I don't know how to bring this in, but like one direction I really want to think about is how can you transfer the knowledge that you have about what types of biases could exist to your model of how this data could have been generated and therefore in what ways it could be biased so that maybe you can have knobs like, you know, instead of if you had a crime recidivism rate uh, model, instead of giving it to some judges and it just spits out like a probability saying this person has X likelihood of committing a crime, maybe the judge you know, if someone had a, a tool to say, okay, what if I know that, you know, this particular data could have been biased in a particular way? For example, this particular zip code is X times more heavily policed or something like that. What if I can have some knobs and change what kinds of biases could exist? And then that kind of tells me what the variance could be for a particular person, like person's outcome or something like this. I don't know. And so in that case, then your knowledge of the world and society is, is very, very useful, right? And you could transfer it directly to your work. Do you think that there are certain problems that we should not be solving right now with machine learning, especially based on the fact that we have bias in our data, bias in the way we're developing? I think that we need to be really careful to include the experts and the the people who are really qualified to work on different problems when we're thinking about using machine learning. Um, and I can give us some specific examples. Um, so one thing is when we work on machine learning in the clinical realm or the health domain, one of the issues that is really difficult from a pure machine learning perspective is how to create technology that is directly useful for clinicians and that also has some sort of explainability for patients. And how how do you work with consent around clinician and patient if you're using machine learning models? And how exactly will this be applied? And one thing that's that's really kind of struck me about this is that we need to make sure that as we work on machine learning, in light of diversity and in light of inclusion, include all the people who this would be directly affecting and who would potentially be working with this in order to understand what the real problems are and bring in the expertise where, where we don't have it as computer scientists. I mean, machine learning is super powerful and it's easy to get into this thought process where you feel like you can sort of do anything, like you're, you know, Superman or something. And that misses the fact that there are so many nuances and so many details across so many different disciplines that you're just going to overlook when you're only focusing on the machine learning hammer. It's a great point, considering I know there's always the questions of how do you test these algorithms? How do you fully test these algorithms? And that, you know, maybe not fully, but definitely looking at a broader way to test the algorithms. Yeah. I totally, I'm, I always agree with Matt, but like, <laughs> I totally agree with this because um, one example was I was talking to Adam Kalai about like some idea I was really excited about and we just went on the whiteboard and we writing probabilities and things like this. And then Glenn, who's an economist, is saying, well, but the way it would really work in the courts is like someone would sue someone like this and, and he just kind of killed our idea like that. But <laughs> but it was really interesting to hear his perspective because I had absolutely no idea, you know, uh, of what he was talking about before, but he explained it to me. But unless you work with people like that, you're not going to come up with something that's directly applicable. 
And you're not going to come up with something that actually addresses the problem. You might come up with a paper that's cool, right. but I don't think you're going to come up with, a, with something that actually addresses the problem. Right. Cool. This, I mean, this is super fascinating. I'm also kind of curious to hear also, like you've, you've touched on it a bit, like saying that we don't also need to talk about the technical side, but I'd love to talk about the technical side too and see, is there solutions on the software side of things as well or how you build our models or how you build your data sets? Can you talk a little bit about that to see if there's there's opportunity there as well to, to help with biases? Yeah, there's definitely definitely a lot to do. We're not in a situation where we have a silver bullet or a clear solution, but we do have a lot of things that we can do, for example, on the data side by including sources that are not just those that are the most easiest or you know, most available to us um, and actually thinking about sampling from locations across the world, different kind of demographic categories, making sure that what we do is representative of who we want to serve and who we want to work with, as opposed to what's at easy access. Um, and this is something that requires like people who are good at collecting data from people, um, which might not be machine learning scientists necessarily, but might be a whole other sort of section of expertise. But there's a lot to be done on how to create inclusive data sets, um, data sets that, that capture a lot of different worldviews that aren't necessarily going to be downloadable from Flickr or Twitter, doing some simple query searches. On the machine learning side, there's a lot of really interesting work coming out now in this space of bias mitigation it's also kind of called unbiasing or debiasing, which is an oversell. That's that's a bit of hype. What we're actually mm. doing when we work with these models is, is we take a look at some sort of known biases, some known stereotypes. For example, Timnit mentioned the Kalai work associating woman to homemaker at, while associating man to computer programmer. These are these kinds of biases that we can kind of discover and then build models around in order to define what is this subspace of bias? What is this subspace of gender bias, for example? And can we do some cool math to address it? Um, doing something like subtracting it out from our representations. I've been doing some fun work at Google where we do adversarial predictions. We basically take predictions on some sensitive attribute and then negate the gradient that we get from that in order to force the model to not be able to um, make decisions based on race or based on gender, or based on different kinds of sensitive characteristics. There's a lot that is coming out and can be done on the ML side. There's a lot more to do, and I'd love to see a lot more focus on, on the data side. But these are just these are just starts. This is just the start of something that could be much bigger. So one, one thing I was thinking about is that, you know, um, we talk about certain things. Like, for example, I gave um, the example of this OpenCV library not detecting Joy's face, right? So a lot of times we talk about diversifying our data sets. So even even um, with our paper with Joy, you know, we, we have this uh, diverse uh, data set more diverse data sets so people can test out their algorithms. But, you know, humans, as a human, if I've never seen, I don't, is this true? Like, if I've never seen a black person before and I see a black person for the first time, I would identify them as a black person, right? I, I mean, as a person. Like, I wouldn't just not detect their face, uh, you know, or, or someone, if I see a new race of some uh, people and given, like, all of the data that I've seen before not being from that race. So I, I, I feel like maybe there is an opportunity for us to go farther than just purely supervised machine learning where, you know, if you don't see it in your data set, then, you know, it's not accurate. And, and in order to make it more accurate, you know, you need to diversify your data set. I, I feel like it could help us have a paradigm shift in how we approach these types of problems. 
Well, and I know there's the value of using these models, especially to think of new ways to solve problems or think of new ways to think about things. That's, you know, that's the real value add that several of these models have come about, which is touching on what you're talking about, like this unstructured learning, this, we try not to tell the model what to think and try not to influence what the model should be thinking. We should try to let it kind of discover on its own. But I know the, the biggest challenge is with the data to begin with. Do you think that there's still a way to fully pull out the bias, especially when you are you know, working with predictive models that are, are doing something that's in relation to people? So one, one thing that, that's interesting is that if we pick the attribute, the, what we call sensitive um, attributes or, I don't know, protective, protected classes, right? So race, gender, age, disability, you know, sexuality, religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then I think we have a, a better chance because we can see what the disparities could be with those things. But when you look at things like healthcare, when you move into a broader view of things, these are not going to be the only things that you will have systematic bias in, um, in my opinion. And so then the question will be, I think, also, how could we discover the bias that we might have not already know exists, right? So even in, in the work that Meg mentioned, they already knew, like, they kind of guessed that there there would be a bias, right? Like um, a gender-based bias. So what about other attributes that we haven't thought about, right? Yeah. Because because we're not 100% diverse. Even if you're well-meaning, there is going to be a bias that you're not aware of unless you're interacting with somebody from that part of the world. So so how do we also address those issues? I don't really have the answer to that. <laughs> but yeah, that's a question I'm thinking about. You have to have all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> one one thing one thing that is really useful. I'm I'm going to put a plug here for this in case there are machine learning people listening. Um one thing that is really useful to do is to take a look at your false positive rate and false negative rate. And false negative rate is one minus true positive rate. So this is this kind of thing you get from an ROC curve. I think in both NLP and computer vision, there tends to be a focus on precision recall. In NLP, F-score is big. Um, in vision, accuracy is big. This overlooks the kinds of errors that might disproportionately affect different kinds of subgroups, different kinds of groups of people. And so by having some focus, at least in our classification systems, on what the differences are in the false negative rate and false positive rate can give us a sense of how these things might be underperforming when we do sort of intersectional analyses by subgroup. That doesn't say much about like score-based systems or ranking-based systems, but there is some basic things that we can do with our given machine learning and statistics machinery to focus in on some sort of statistical version of disparate impact or how things might be affecting some subgroups worse than others. Um, in, our, in our current paper, we were analyzing APIs, right? So the APIs were gender classification. So they just look at a face and um, they, you know, give you a binary like male, female label. And they don't give you a probability or anything like that. They just give you the label. And this does not allow you to, to adjust for your particular setting. You might want to have different types of, you know, false positive, false negative rates. And if you don't get the probability output, you can't, you don't have a chance to adjust this. The thresholds, yeah. The threshold, exactly. So this is one concrete, I think, step that commercial APIs can take, because I'm certainly very worried about commercial APIs, because at least, okay, in research, um, you know, you have an understanding that it's research, maybe it's for only the research community, etc. These commercial APIs are being used by, by so many different 
startups, so many different people. You don't know. We don't have any regulation. Potentially governments. Governments could use them. There's We don't have, they're not accountable. They don't have to tell us what they're using, what the accuracy is, what the characteristics of the software is for what, for which reasons. So I guess I'm bringing it back to the standardization stuff. But I mean, I think this is, Meg's example is a, a great example of, I think, the kinds of information, additional information that these APIs need to give us. And interpretability, I know that's a, a huge one, too, in terms of understanding what's really going on inside of the model to begin with. And Mark, I want to make sure you have a chance. I know you had another question you wanted to ask. No, no, no. You're good. Keep going. Oh, OK. Well, I think the that one of the other questions, and you, you both have touched on this already, is you know what are some of the other tools um, in the space that you, you'd recommend that people can use now to help with their own work in, the, in machine learning and, and driving fairness? So um, on my side, I can speak to some uh, Google products and services that I'm actually kind of excited about um, and have been working with a bit. So one thing is uh, Facets, which is a visualization for ML data sets. It's available on GitHub. And it's a way that you can do different slicing across different kinds of groups or subgroups or you know demographic characteristics in order to see how well your data or how well your output is representing each of these different kinds of groups. It's a really handy visualization tool and you can look at the effect of different thresholding and, and do a lot of really cool stuff with it. Um, so that's something that Google has put out to help on the data side of understanding some of the possible biases. There's also this thing that's come out from Google called Lattice, um, which helps with some kind of post-hoc analyses and interpretability about different machine learning models. I believe it's publicly called Lattice Google. Yes, TensorFlow Lattice. And we're putting more and more into TensorFlow to help with different kinds of machine learning problems that can deal with fairness and bias. We're kind of keeping it really technically focused right now, but creating this kind of code base um, that we can share with others to help with these these kinds of bias and fairness issues. Great. Tim Neat, what about you? Oh, I would recommend um, that people uh, check out the Fat Star conference that's about to happen. And the, the tutorial section has a, a whole bunch of tools, like uh, just software to visualize your data and what kind of discrimination might exist to pre-process some data, um, some, some tools to help with interpretability. So really, like, I think a lot of the tutorial is just about these different tools. So I would just recommend that people check those out. Joy, Joy is totally using facets, by the way, to <laughs> yes, me. I don't yes, know if you know yes, that. Yes. But for all of her beautiful visualizations, totally using facets. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, dude, that's the tool. Yeah. I'll, I'll jump in real quick. You've mentioned Joy twice. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Because I, I think we talked about it before the actual podcast artist. Joy is a person, a person who is a bundle there we go. of joy She's a <laughs> and energy. Yeah. She's a mutual She's friend. She's a bundle of joy and energy. Um, joy is a student at MIT Media Lab who focuses on uh, face recognition and bias and face recognition. And I consider, I mean, at this point, she's a computer vision person. She keeps on saying that she's not but so joy her name is a joy bua lamwini we should say basic, uh, she has something called the algorithmic justice league she even gave a ted talk Amazing. i mean awesome. and she just started her phd <laughs> and i met her two years ago ish um and we've been collaborating um ever since so our current paper at fast start is actually based on her master's thesis so she spent a whole bunch of time analyzing uh, face recognition. Um, and she did this um, intersectional kind of analysis. So usually, you know, people just look at, well, 
usually people just look at aggregate accuracy on some sort of data set, right? And then maybe they would break it down by male, female, or uh, or race. And so she said, okay, you don't, you can't just break it down by just gender or just race or just age. You have to look at the intersection of gender and race or gender, race, and age, et cetera, et cetera. And then she also thought, you know, people have done this analysis across different racial groups, but race, as we know, is a very unstable category. So, you know, what is considered black in the U.S. is very different from Brazil, from South Africa, from Ethiopia, et cetera. And it's not even stable across time. So her idea was to use this um, more objective metric of skin tone, what's called a um, Fitzpatrick skin classification system. And so um, analyze accuracy by the intersection of gender and, and that. And also, you know, other things too. But for this paper, it was just, you know, uh, gender. And so Joy has been very vocal about this. She's been working with various organizations like the IEEE to come up with a new standard. But in addition to that, she also works on just, you know, algorithmic fairness um, from the, you know, social standpoint and from the technical standpoint. I mean, she does so many things. I can't keep track of all the things she's doing. She also <laughs> makes like short movies and, and she also raps, by the way. And like, uh, you know, uh, it's just, just like, she's, awesome. she's you know, super inspiring. <laughs> again, diversity for me comes in because people like her are generally either turned away from the field of machine learning or somehow weeded out. Yeah, I think that type of personality is generally given some sort of subliminal message that they don't belong in this environment. And we really need to change the educational system or the marketing or whatever it is that is kind of excluding people like her to bring in people like her because we absolutely need those types of people in this field, especially when we're talking about fairness. Yeah, um, completely be, agree. Be, just be clear. Um, so her, her last name is Bulam Winnie. Um, and you can check out her TED Talk if you want, which covers a lot of this. The last name is spelled B-U-O-L-A-M-W-I-N-I. We'll put a link in the show notes. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, AGLunited.org is the Algorithmic Justice League. Great. Thank you. And I also wanted to make sure, Tim, can you also tell us, because I know you touched on it, but can you explain a little bit more about Fat Star? I know this is a conference that you're one of the ones who's founded it. No, I'm in the program committee, and so is Meg. Okay. Uh, but uh, the person who, well, the pe- the main people are Sorel Fiddler, Suresh, and Solon Barocas. So if you go to fatconference.org, I- I'm just a big fan. I always talk about it. I-, I didn't, I don't want people to think that I founded this conference. No worries. But if you go to um, fatconference.org, um, you'll see like who the editors are and who the program chair is and, and things like this. Yeah. So this was actually started as a workshop at NIPS, which is a, a top uh, deep learning conference. Um, um, I believe uh, Solon Barocas and Moritz Hart were the original sort of creators um, a few years back. And that was before it was super hot, super hip um, to look at diversity and policy and these kinds of issues. Um, they were really interested in combining machine learning and and law, um, things like taking the Civil Rights Act um, from 1964 and its notion of disparate impact and then applying that mathematically to something like demographic parity. Um, and so really making those connections between the legal world and the and the ML mathematical world. And it's it's really sort of gotten tons of interest and really sort of making some strides in this space. And so now it's become its own conference. And um, it switched from fat ML to fat star uh, as a as a kind of nod to regular expressions. So it's fairness, accountability and transparency, 
not just for machine learning, but for lots of other things as well. You know, what What I'm excited about this conference is the fact that it's interdisciplinary. Again, I, I'm a huge fan of interdisciplinary teams in general. And one of the things that, that I haven't seen before is, like, uh, is in the tutorials, they have also these translational tutorials. So there's specifically translational tutorials, which could be you know, translating a concept that is very well known in one specific area to people from a different specific area. So it could be translating a very well known machine learning concept to lawyers or translating a very well known uh, things in healthcare to machine learning people. So just kind of start to, uh, bridging this gap of knowledge between the different groups so that we can have some sort of common understanding and common ground to start working together. This is great. And I hate to say it that we're pretty much close to time um, oh. because oh, we wow. could talk we could <laughs> yeah. talk about this for a while. Clearly, clearly. I did want to ask you both, um, you know, as we get close to wrapping this out, is there any last things that you wanted to talk about or in terms of making sure people are aware of anything you wanted to plug uh, Margaret, do you have anything that comes to mind? Right. So if people are interested in this space, it's not just fairness that, that is sort of of interest, I think, to people working on fairness. Um, it's, it's ethics broadly. And so there are also ethics sort of conferences to be aware of. Um, there was just one that was co-located with AAAI, the AI Ethics and Society Conference. Coming up, um, I'm hosting one for NLP, for language processing specifically, ethics in natural language processing which will be in New Orleans on June 5th. Um, so there's there's lots of other ways to get involved if you'd like to take a look at ethics broadly with machine learning. Great. Thank you. Tim Neep? Yeah, I want to say something about hype and ethics and fairness. I think that we should all care about fairness and ethics and diversity, of course. But sometimes all of these words are used as buzzwords. And sometimes they're used for PR purposes. And sometimes... They're yeah. used for image purposes. So let me give an example. If you have an all-male panel on AI for ethics or AI for social good or something like this, I have very little faith that this is actually AI for social good. If you have an all-male team or, or a very homogeneous team or you've never graduated a female student or something like this, and now someone is, people are talking about yeah. AI ethics and things like that. So, so I think people say charity starts at home, right? So I, I encourage everybody to think about our, our local, our, our kind of our surroundings and think about AI ethics in that, in that sense, because it's not just like, you know, raising money or, or creating the, the, the next coolest fairness um, <laughs> kind of uh, algorithm. It's also about including people who are very well positioned to work on these problems in your surroundings in your immediate surroundings. Yeah, one thing I like to look at is how many papers have been published with women? <laughs> like, <laughs> what is your track record for publishing with women? What is your track record for producing projects with women? This is one of these things that gets overlooked, but can also be a, a sign of, of lack of understanding or inclusion of these kinds of other viewpoints. Yeah, and so this is this is why I'm always so happy that um, Meg is um, always talking about um, accessibility as well um, as part of the conversation around ethics, for example. Wonderful. Um, I, I wish we had more time. I really do. This has been a remarkable, remarkable conversation. And I really uh, thank you so much to both of you, uh, Timnit and uh, Margaret. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. For, for joining us. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. Maybe we'll just have to do this again at some point soon. <laughs> yeah. I know. And, and have to do a part two. I to talk to <laughs> I I'm really happy. Go <laughs> next time, like hours, next time yeah. we'll get joy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's Absolutely. good. She's like missing. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us.
Thank you to Neat and Margaret again for that great interview. I, I really wish we'd had more time with them yeah. because it was a good topic. It's an important topic and it's something that, you know, we can explore in more detail in many ways. As Timneet had mentioned and Margaret had mentioned, Fat Stars' conference is coming up next week. Uh, and actually over the weekend there was some great press and coverage for a paper that both Joy and Timneet had worked on that's titled Gender Shades, Intersectional Accuracy, Disparities in Commercial Gender Classification. And they do this basically assessment of facial recognition systems and how good they are, in essence, of being able to recognize, especially from a shade and gender perspective. And they use some interesting techniques to assess that. So we'll include that in our show notes in terms of links to that and all the links to all the things that were referenced while we were talking to them. Good stuff. So, Mark, got to ask you this question. Question of the week, right? (laughs) It's always got to get a good question in there. How do you feel? Now, our questions of the week is, as I mentioned, you had this wonderful <laughs> chat with KF. I always have any chat with KF is wonderful. It's all on Twitter, yep. but you both were talking about, is there a GCP service that handles cloud identity aware proxy, especially host via cloud storage? So, Mark, is there? Is there? Okay, so if people aren't aware of cloud identity aware proxy, it's a proxy that you can put in front of your applications that controls whether people have access, basically through their account logins. It works with App Engine Stand, App Engine Flexible Environment, Compute Engine, and Kubernetes Engine. But what KF wants to do is put it in front of Google Cloud Storage uh, for static sites. So the short answer is, unfortunately, no. (laughs) But there are a couple of interesting workarounds that I think are worth discussing. The first one is, and it's a bit of a cheeky answer, but you can always host static content on App Engine itself. There's no reason why not. It's actually really, really easy to do. There's a lot of opportunities there for putting static content. And if you're using some sort of programming language and you wanted to mix and match, there's also opportunities to do stuff like that as well. So that's that's always the thing. So you could always put the static content rather than putting in Google Cloud Storage. You could put it on App Engine and then put Cloud Identity Aware Proxy in front of that. And you still get a lot of the really great edge caching you would get on Google Cloud Storage. The other option is a open source product that's available on GitHub. And we'll have links in the show notes. It's called Weasel, which is an interesting name in of itself, which is basically a App Engine proxy for basically files that you store on Google Cloud Storage. So you could put this up on App Engine, then just change whatever you need to change or host whatever you need to host inside Google Cloud Storage, and then put the uh, identity-aware proxy in front of that that application that runs and on App Engine. it's called Weasel? It's called Weasel. Yeah, I, yeah, I... Great name. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a thing. I'm going to assume the naming has something to do with it's like a Weasels make tunnels, and it's like tunneling through from App Engine to Cloud Storage. That's sure, my we'll theory. go with that. Yeah, I, I genuinely don't know. But those are the two options. Uh, neither is, is exactly what KF is looking for, but it does give you some options to allow you to do something similar to what it is you're looking to do. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> I know. She was definitely like, well, that's not really what I want. <laughs> but hey, we're trying to help. Yes. Um, okay, so Mark, where are you going to be in the next couple of weeks? Uh, still doing all the work that I can possibly for GDC. I'm pretty excited about that. Is GDC a thing? GDC is a thing. I'll start talking a bit about more about that. But yeah, we'll be having a booth presence across Google on the floor. So I'll be giving talks there. There's some other fun stuff we're, we're also organizing as well. So as we get a bit closer and everything gets super locked down. Lots of preparation. Lots of preparation. Nice. Well, to? I'm going to go to New York for Fat Star next week. And nice. that's where you will be finding me. But outside of that, I think that covers us for this week. All right. Well, Melanie, thank you for joining me once again on the episode this week. Thanks, Mark. And thank you all for listening. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks.